0: Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We will be looking at verses 2 through 9 today. Isaiah chapter 1. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the Word. Fathers, we come to you this morning as we come to your Word. This morning we admit our own lack of knowledge and understanding, even in Christ, we struggle with these words and what they mean, and we struggle with the sin that would cause us to put our own bent on the word, to bring our own glory about from your word. And so, Lord, we pray that as we read from your word, that you would convict our hearts of that sin and that you would lead us to the truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as I read through the text this week and just continuing to read through this first part of Isaiah, one of the things that I'm reminded of constantly is a lot of the pronouncements that are made in earlier parts of the Old Testament. So, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 31. And we'll use this to introduce our text this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 31 This is when Moses was alive and the people of the Lord had been continually moving into sin over and over again. And these words Moses gave to them, starting at verse 24. He said this, Deuteronomy 31, 24. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and put it by your side, by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me, all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in, all, and in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands." So, the people of Israel had come out of Egypt. You probably all remember that story from the book of Exodus. people of Israel were in Egypt as slaves. The Lord sent Moses to bring his people out. And God himself, through many miracles, the miracles of sending the plagues, if you remember, the miracle of parting the Red Sea, which we read from in Psalm 106 this morning, providing manna from heaven, meat and water from the rock and a pillar of fire and smoke to guide them as they walked through the wilderness victory over their enemies over and over again in the land of canaan and in chapter 29 of this book we read that their clothes and their shoes never wore out from 40 years of walking through the desert again the lord's doing pretty incredible and what do we read here in Deuteronomy 31? A stubborn, ungrateful people who continually do evil on the side of the Lord, even though the Lord has been so wonderful to them. It's the picture of a child who rebels against his loving parents. It's the picture of a man who cheats on a faithful and loving wife. It's the picture of wanton sin and treachery. And it's what we have before us even in Isaiah today. The reason I chose Deuteronomy 31 is to introduce our text because in 32, Moses begins a song the very same way Isaiah begins our text today. Verse 1 of chapter 32, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Of course, Moses came first. But Isaiah, of course, is hearkening back to this time when Israel rebelled against the one who had done so much for her. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Very similar to verse 2 in our text today. Very similar themes. As we look in our passage today, we'll look at Israel's sin, what it brought to them as a nation, as children of God. We'll look at the historical context again because this is going to continually be an important thing for us in this book. We'll see ourselves, hopefully, that's the whole point of this, is to see ourselves and our own sin and our lack of a grateful heart. Most importantly, we'll see the hope that is at the end of our passage today. We're not left without hope, even in the darkest of passages. And so we'll consider three main ideas from this text. The sin of the people the result of that sin, and then the hope that is to come. And so with that, let's look today at our text, Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. For from the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in the cucumber field. Like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So as we venture into a book that is primarily poetry, as you look through here, you will see... Many, many pages of poetry as the the words are kind of offset and they have this odd look to them. It's because they are Hebrew poetry. We'll get through a couple of sections of narrative in in the book of Isaiah, but largely it's poetry. I think it's important for us to have a bit of a primer how to read and understand it. So we'll do that briefly here this morning. I think it's going to help you in your own personal study as you look at the Psalms and other books as well. If you'll notice... Most of the verses are grouped together in what are called couplets or triplets sometimes. Basically phrases that are grouped in these twos and threes. Then the purpose behind this is to say something that has the same meaning, but to say it in a different way. Oftentimes coming about this meaning from different angles, the way we would understand it today. Even look at our, look at our reading from Psalm 106 today. The lines, both we and our Father have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. They're all grouped together. What's the idea? To make sure that you understand what they have done. Provide more depth to show the fullness of that idea. And so as we work through the text today, you're going to see this. I think you've probably noticed that is even as we read. Look for those groupings. And I think that'll help you to find more depth in the text. Sometimes it can, they can strengthen one another. Sometimes they're opposite of one another. They're purposefully set at at opposite ends of the same idea. And I think this little tool is one of the biggest assets you can have when working through books of poetry. And so with that, let's look at the first point, the sin of the people. Look with me at verse two. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children, I have reared and brought up, they have rebelled against me. Isaiah is calling on the whole earth to hear the words of the Lord. They are judgment against the people of Israel. It's a com, it's common biblical language to call in all of creation to bear witness to what the Lord has done. Sometimes you kind of get this courtroom. Feel not so much here, but it is still look upon what my children have done. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. One major understanding that we get here when the Lord says children, it's not simply begetting. Like it's not simply that the Lord created them, He did create His children just like He created all things. Many pagan religions have this same idea that the God or goddess of that religion created or gave birth to humanity only to simply watch them from afar being so busy with their own affairs and their own whims that they have little time for humanity. Sometimes they interfere, but mostly they're kind of doing their own thing. That is much different than the God of the Bible. He created His people... Not only that, but he reared them. He brought them up. Not only did he give birth to them, but he was with them every step of the way. Nurtured them. Disciplined them. Just go back and read Genesis through Deuteronomy. And you get that very idea. He literally brought them along as children. When he heard the cries of his children in Egypt, what did he do? He went to them. He sent to them a deliverer. He was with them the whole time in the desert. Every step of the way he was with them. And how did they respond? They rebel. Just how awful is this? Well, Isaiah is quick to give us a picture of how awful this is. Verse 3. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey, its master's crib. Or basically, where it finds food. But... Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Even the donkey and the ox know better than God's children do. It was widely understood then as it is now. The donkey and the ox are not exactly known for their intelligence. They are known for their stubbornness. They are known for being dumb. Yet, they know exactly who feeds them. If you keep any sort of livestock or have, you know, they know exactly what the food bowl sounds like and they will come running. They know where it is warm. They know where they can rest. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Verse four. Ah, sinful nation or alas, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. The idea here is that they are simply children, born of the evil generation before them. This doesn't give them an out at all. It's not the the former generation's fault, for instance, that they're sinful. Obviously, they have their own sin. But it does show us how deep the sin of Israel is. It's a generational kind of thing. This isn't just a problem of the current generation not understanding, but also the ones who gave birth to them. This should perk our own ears up, should it not? If anyone is quick to say, oh, well, it's just these kids. These kids are the bad ones. If we could only return to the way things were, how often do we hear that? Then that would help things, right? The way things were were awful too, just in case you're wondering. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are estranged. Think of how we oftentimes use this word estranged, like a man or a woman who's cheated on their spouse. They, the people of Israel, have cheated on their Lord with other gods. They are ruined. They are gone. You don't have to think hard to see application for ourselves here. As we look around us, we see a generation of people who have turned biblical morality on its head, who relish in death rather than life, where traditional marriage as a separate term, as a, an idea of the family is frowned upon nowadays, where babies die by the millions because they are inconvenient. A sinful nation... A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. We have forsaken the Lord. We were reared and brought up by him, yet we rebel against him. Even the animals know better than we do. So what is the right response? First of all, church, we don't need to see ourselves as uh, better The right response, of course, is repentance. Turn from your wicked ways and turn to the Lord Jesus. If you're pointing fingers at the nation, just go look in the mirror and point. That's the real culprit in this situation. We must come face to face with our own sin if we plan to offer any hope at all to the outside world. That is the the only chance that they have is that we know, first and foremost, that we are sinners. If we see ourselves as somehow having the moral high ground, just remember that Jesus Christ is the only one ever and forever that could say, look upon me and be saved. It's not upon me they need to look. And that leads me to the next idea, the result of that sin. Look with me at verses five and six. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. Bruises and sores and raw raw wounds. They are pressed out or they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. We have this picture of an individual who is injured traumatically. And why are they struck down? Why will you still be struck down is what the Lord says. This is the picture of a person who takes a punch to the face and and gets up and then demands another one. It doesn't make any sense. There's no learning involved. There's no change of behavior involved with the person that's struck you down. We would call this irrational or insane. To know the pain that sin causes the damage, the injury, all that it causes, to know the hurt that it can bring, to know how bad it is, yet to continue in it. We would call that irrational. King Ahaz, whose situation is likely the setting for this passage, is the perfect picture of that kind of irrationality. Turn with me quickly to Second Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles 28, you'll find kings and just keep going a little bit and you'll find Chronicles. Second Chronicles 28, starting at verse 20, I want to read Ahaz's story here because I think it's important for us to kind of get a historical context. Starting at verse 20, so Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria. But it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Assyria helped them, I will sacrifice to them if they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah he made high places to make offerings to other gods. Provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Now the rest of the acts of all his ways, from first to the last, behold, are they written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, in Jerusalem, for they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Which was a dishonor, by the way, for them not to bury him with the other kings. That's what they thought of their king. He needed help. Ahaz did. What did he do? He went to the enemy. The enemy didn't help him. The enemy hurt him. That's all sin is capable of doing, hurting you. And so then what did he do? He sacrificed gods to the, ones, to the gods of the people that destroyed him, thinking they would help him now. He destroyed the vessels of the temple. He shut the doors of the temple, and he made false gods all over the city of Jerusalem, which provoked the actual God to anger the only one who can ever act out in his anger why would you do that on purpose ahaz did that it's a picture of our own sin our own irrationality in our sin back to isaiah chapter one verses seven and eight your country lies desolate your cities are burned with fire in your very presence foreigners devour your land you kind of get this idea of what ahaz is going through It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners, and the daughter of Zion is left, like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. This gives us this picture of this country raided and pillaged, run through by captors and thieves. And I think the meaning here is pretty plain. Verse 8 shows us what is left. The only thing that is left is the daughter of Zion, the people of Israel. North and south, left behind, like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in the cucumber field, not imagery that we readily uh, relate to. During harvest in these days, in this culture, a worker would go out to a particular field, maybe a cucumber field or some sort of field, and they would put up a little shelter, like a little lean-to type shelter, and they would stay in that shelter because it was more beneficial just to stay there during the time of harvest and not travel all the way back into the city, but to just stay there for that time. It was a protection from the wind and the cold and the rain. It was very temporary, though. Harvest is temporary. You get the harvest, you take it home. And so what is left behind? After the harvest, for the rest of the year, you have this solitary, dilapidated shelter sitting in a stripped field all alone by itself. This is the picture of Israel. The actual picture, dealing with their real enemies, they're right in the middle, all alone. But the figurative one is there too, right? Because of their sin, they're laid bare, stripped out, all alone. It's a tough picture for us, or it should be. Sin can leave a horrible picture in its wake. It can cause us to feel that our own lives lie desolate. That we remain in all this lonely shack in the middle of a field. To make sure that we understand this, sin isn't some sort of abstract enemy. I think oftentimes we can abstract sin. Sin is just simply waiting for us to be vulnerable and then it comes in and gets us. Sin is something that we do, you and I do, on purpose. With forethought, against the Holy One of Israel. Sin isn't something that happens to us. It is something that we commit on purpose. It isn't something that we weren't looking for. It is a deliberate choice that we make. When we talk about sin here, we're not talking about their sin. We're talking about my sin and your sin. And that's important for us to understand. Sure, the sins of a nation are an important topic. And in many ways, the church should be at the forefront, leading the charge against sin and immorality. Don't get me wrong. That's exactly what we should be doing. We have the moral code. We talked about it this morning in, from the Shorter Catechism. We have the Word of God. Where is that morality uh, comprehended? In the, in the Ten Commandments. We have to speak that to a lost world. Absolutely. We're not talking about that here, though. We're talking about the sin that causes people to forsake the one that they love. To go into the arms of a false God. God stands by and asks, why will you still be struck down? Why would you continue to rebel? We stand in this difficult position. Because if you're like me, the answer to that question is a hard one. And we should hate it. Why do we do this? Reminds me of Paul's plight in Romans 7. I know the good that I ought to be doing, but I'm not doing it. The things that I ought not do, these are the things that I am doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am. So let's not miss the hope here that's at the end of this passage. Did something remain in the field? Even if it was just an ugly little shack. Isn't a besieged city still a city? Is there any hope? That brings me to the next point, the hope that is to come. Look with me at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Left for us a few survivors. In other places in the book, and Todd read from Romans 11 this morning, This idea will continue to come up, and the term that will be used oftentimes, rather than use survivors, is the term of a remnant. This group, this small bit that is left behind from absolute destruction. Turn with me to Genesis 19, quickly. Genesis 19, probably a familiar passage to you all. One that is referred to over and over in the scriptures. Genesis 19 starting at verse 23 and I'll read. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out from the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot Had lived. So here's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were they were sinful places, and the Lord said, "I'm not going to take their sin any longer, and I'm going to destroy those cities." And He did just that. And they are oftentimes used as this picture of complete and utter destruction, literally wiped off the face of the earth. The Lord Himself overthrew those cities. He didn't bring Assyria or Babylon to do that. He did it Himself. Just And just to make clear, the Lord overthrew those cities, just like every city that's overthrown. He's at the the hand of that, even Jerusalem and Samaria, all under his guidance. Not only is there destruction, but there's also deliverance at the end of this passage of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Who survived? Abraham, his people. Lot, his people. In Israel's case, there would be ultimately only one survivor. Because no one else could measure up to God's standard. No one else was going to be measure, able to measure up to the standard that the Father had laid out. So only one survivor would ever be found. Because the sin of the north and the south, both kingdoms will end up in utter destruction, as we will read in this book. And when it comes to the law, they will continue to be found wanting. The Lord is never going to look upon Israel and say, you guys are finally getting it. That never happens in all of Scripture Even groups that are going to spring up later, like the Pharisees, their righteousness is still just filthy rags compared to that of the Lord and that of the Lord's demands. The true remnant, the real survivor, not only had to follow the law, but he also had to take the punishment for that rebellion that was continually caused by Israel. For there to be a survivor, not only did that person have to take on all of the demands of the law, but they also had to pay for the sins of all the people because they had to be paid for. Who could do this? Only God himself. Keeping the law. Atoning for sin. And so he did just that. He came. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the only survivor. The remnant. The one who is left. He is both the one that would satisfy the Father's desire for holiness and divine wrath for the sins of all of His creation. He is the only one who could be both. So when we look around at our situation, when we look around at the, the, the sin of the world that's all around us, and if you've watched the news at all this week, there's been some pretty horrific things that have been In the news, some sin that is just despicable and awful. Don't look in the mirror and say, okay world, it's time that you see a good person. We don't need any more good people as the world defines good. We don't need good people to go out and change the evil of the world. Good people pass laws that legalize the murder of infants. Good people destroy the definition of the family. Good people preach heresy. Because it makes people comfortable. Good people sit idly by while well, all that happens. We don't need any more good people. We need Jesus. The other side of that is we do need people who upon their reliance of, on Christ are out making Christ known. The only answer, the only good person, the only remnant the only one by which you and I survive. We do need folks who serve the Lord by serving the lost, the hungry, the thirsty, the homeless, the sick. We need people who are doing the work of Christ for His sake, in His name. This was Israel's original calling, and they failed. In Christ, we, His people, are called to do the same. And so in conclusion, in our text today, I think we come face to face with our own sin. At least hopefully we have. But we've also come face to face with the Savior of our sin, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who never forget who we are, sinners saved by grace. And let us be a people who do not continue to rebel, but submit more and more to the authority of Christ in our lives. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we see ourselves in the mirror that is your word. It shows us how sinful we are. Even the donkeys and the oxen know better than we do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would change our wicked hearts, that you would turn us back to you, so then that we could go to a wicked world. So that we could proclaim your name, not our own, to a world that needs you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.